Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling is my friend and co-host, Adam. Hey, Patch. How's it going? It's good, man. We are starting a new conversation with a series that has been around for quite a while. We are talking about Stranger Things, but hopefully you're going to be new to the conversation. You're going to be a first-time watcher with, uh, with me, as I have really only glanced at the series uh, when it first came out, wasn't really into it as much as everybody else was, or you might be a rewatcher and are coming to the conversation from Adam's point of view, who has seen it. Uh, have you seen it more than once or has this, uh, what's this been like? For uh, no, not the uh, first season. I, I watched the first season when it first came out in 2016, which is a few years ago now, as you mentioned. And uh, this is my first time coming back to re-examine the first season. Yeah, I'm excited about the conversation more than anything because this is really why we started the podcast, not to do this particular series, but the idea right. about that water cooler conversation. So Stranger Things, I believe, was Netflix's first big time original series, like their big success story. The Duffer Brothers came in, they pitched it and Netflix gave them the green light and it just took off. I remember being on social media at the time and people were like, you got to watch Stranger Things. I'm like, I refuse to do that because I'm not going to be one of those people. And I tried to. And by the time I started watching, everybody was like, man, you got to watch The Mandalorian because it's awesome. And I'm like, I'm just, you know, FOMO just does not connect with me. I, I don't really <laughs> have that. I remember thinking, you know, I want to watch this, but I feel like it could be a good enough series to watch on my own. But I want to enjoy it and experience it with someone else. And so this is one of those shows that I was looking forward to covering with you because I know it was one that you were excited about. You'd seen it already. And to be able to really kind of join the conversation one-on-one -on -one as opposed to trying to find somebody online like, have you seen Stranger Things? I hope you have because uh, I've started watching it. I know I'm like several years behind the curve. So I I'm legitimately I'm sure you could find a random person on the internet <laughs> to talk to you about the show. I don't want to do that though. <laughs> they're, they're out there. <laughs> they there are. They are. And I don't think I want to I don't think I want no. to experience that at all. So here we are. We're yes. talking about Stranger Things season 1, episode 1, The Vanishing of Will Byers. Is I yes. think the title of it. And they refer to them as chapters, which I actually kind of like. Yeah. Chapter 1. Yeah, the I kind of like Will that Byers. Too. So what we'll do for this series listeners is I'm just going to read the synopsis and then we'll jump right into our spoiler-filled conversation for this episode. Adam, because you've seen the series already up to date, I know that one of the things that we're going to try to do as much as we can is avoid referring to other episodes or hints to like, oh yeah, you want to watch yeah. out for that guy. So, you know, for my sake individually, but also for listeners who might be coming to the party a little late, just like me. And we do that with all of our episodes, with all of our TV series. So know that that's a standing rule that we try to follow, do our best. Even with series like Ted Lasso, if you've listened to that, we try to make sure that we don't hint ahead to any subsequent seasons that may be out there. So that being said... Right. We might speculate, and especially if we haven't seen 
the series, but we will never, if we have, we will never reveal anything intentionally. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, nonetheless, I think it's going to be a fun conversation. All right. Here's a synopsis for season one, episode one. At the U.S. Department of Energy, an unexplained event occurs. Then, when a young Dungeons & Dragons playing boy named Will disappears after a night with his friends, his mother Joyce and the town of Hawkins are plunged into darkness. <laughs> so, <laughs> I read that synopsis and I'm like, is that pretty accurate? Well, I give it maybe about a 60% accuracy. <laughs> it, but, like, describes the first few minutes or so. <laughs> right. Yeah. But so. it, it's like the setup. But a lot more happens, I think, than yeah. what that synopsis is uh, is suggesting. Yeah. I wanted to start the conversation by talking about the the setting. So this is a series that the Duffer Brothers have decided needs to take place in the 80s. And I think that this setting is actually perfect for what we're actually getting in this first episode. The 80s themselves, I remember this throwback vintageness to it, not only in how it looks, but all the things that are taking place. We open up with this really insane monster that we don't see. And then it cuts to the Dungeons and Dragons party that's going on. Now, Adam, I know you play D and D online with friends. Did yeah. you play D and D growing up as a kid? No. In fact, this is the, my first uh, time watching this show since I started playing. I never, played when i first watched the show i only actually started playing in the last couple of years and i'm actually currently in a in a campaign where i'm playing the uh, original version of dungeons and dragons there's been five iterations over the last 40 years and my my uh, party were going old school and playing basically the same version that the kids in this show are playing but on virtually online because my group of friends is uh in several different states and there's one of them's in, even in Canada. So we, uh, we play online, but yeah, it's this uh, depiction of the kids playing is kind of fascinating to watch now because I, I, I always wanted to play as a kid. I was fascinated by Dungeons and Dragons and I would go to Walden books in our book, local mall and like I look at the Walden books and see like, yeah. Oh, what is this? What are these? Because I, I thought the artwork was fantastic, you know, the dragons. And I, I just never had anybody in my group of friends that was interested enough to figure it out because you really did have to invest time and you needed one person to be what they call the DM or the dungeon master or the game master. Somebody that kind of is calling the shots and sort of driving the story forward. They don't actually play the game. And so every your friends get to play and be characters in this adventure, but one person can't, can't actually play. They're sort of controlling everything. And uh, in, in this show, it's, uh, it's Mike, it's Mike Wheeler's character that is the dungeon master and yeah, watching them play and how intense that feeling is. I actually have had that now since watching the show originally. And it's because you really can, you can your character that you've worked so hard to create, to build, to level up. Unlike a video game, if you die, or in this case in the show, they, it's the Demogorgon. If the Demogorgon kills your character, that's it. You're 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 done. You're out of the game. And so the other players may continue on without you on their quest, on their adventure. But if you you could roll up a new character and I guess be inserted, but the stakes always felt feel a lot higher. I think than a video game where you can just be like, okay. 
do a, another another character, another life, right? Start over. And uh yeah, it's a lot of fun, I have to say. And I think um I don't know, you I, I don't know if you've ever played any type of role playing game, but it's uh, it's it's really uh that I I never I missed the chant I missed my opportunity to do this as a kid. So I'm sort of living uh my childhood dream now as an adult playing uh virtually online. Yeah, I was gonna ask if it got that intense. I'm glad you clarified that, yeah. that there have been times. Yeah. I, I was exposed to that as a kid, but I never got into playing it. Never and I think that I was never really into the fantasy side of that, like the epic fantasy. Um, Lord of the Rings is probably my limit in terms of like what I can absorb, you know, both from a literature point of view and a movie point of view. But things like World of Warcraft and the stuff where you have dragons and sorcerers and things like that, just it didn't it didn't do it for me. But I knew that people around me, um, my my friend Brian's sister, when I was growing up, she was all into it. Her boyfriend was into it. They would do weekly campaigns and they would rotate houses. And I mean, it was a thing just like this. Yeah. Yeah. But, but they would go beyond D and D they would refer to it as D and D as a sort of a, an event like they would have a D and D event, but it would be something like, I think there was one called heroes where you actually did that same type of thing, but you had superheroic powers. So you could pick what kind of power you wanted and go through campaigns, but you'd have a DM. Yeah. And, and I would be like, are there dungeons in this game? No, but DM became like ubiquitous for the person that was controlling the story. My old right. boss, uh, he up until maybe a couple of months ago was having weekly events at his house with you know his daughter's um, friends hosting as the DM for this thing, and he has like a giant map that he displays on his television. I mean, it's just insane, and I don't yeah. get it, but I don't disrespect it either. I, I just don't understand it, and there are things out there that. I can I can say that about D&D is one of those things where it never appealed to me, but I can also understand to an extent why it's such a fascinating thing because you're getting into role playing. And it's it's something that I think is an extension of who we are as people where we like to just really get into being characters that we wouldn't normally be able to portray in real life. And it's more than that, too, because D&D in particular about any of these role-playing games, it's also about sort of creating a story. And for anybody that's ever wanted to be a filmmaker or a writer, that's essentially what you're doing. You're, you're creating characters, but then they really can do and go almost anywhere within the confines of the, what they call a module. And the, the DM can kind of help guide you along that path, but you can make whatever choice you want. The DM can prepare for any, you know, for a, a specific scenario, but the characters may choose to just turn around, go the opposite direction. And the DM has to kind of roll with it and figure out how to adapt. And so because of that, you're, you're really creating a story. You can add, you can meet people, you can add them to your party. It's like, it really is like playing uh, Lord of the Rings where you're, you're each playing a different member of, of the fellowship going on this quest. And it's, it's just, it, I never knew how much I would like it until I started playing. I always, as I said, was fascinated by it and was interested in learning. But until you actually go on a campaign, I don't think you quite realize how exhilarating and how invested you become in that entire uh, experience. So I hope one day we can get you, uh, get you into a game. I'm not knowledgeable enough yet <laughs> to be a DM. That's the hardest role. I think you can, you can have uh, when you play this and it's a tough, 
thing to learn. So I'm uh, hoping one day maybe I can do that and then I can collect a group of my friends and run a campaign. And I'll have I'll just you come on. in as a guest orc or something like that, and maybe just die off within a couple hours. And you just, can. Just, there like are a... roles like that. You can be. Uh, <laughs> uh, you can you can play, you know, characters like you can play uh, a guy in in a, a, a blacksmith in the town or something, and you could come on a, on a day adventure with us or something, and then go back to your uh, to making armor and, and sword. I could do that. I yeah. wouldn't mind that. That's a note to self. Let's see if we can make yeah. that happen. Anyway. Well, I yeah, I didn't want that to turn into a D and D podcast, but you know, it may yeah. end up doing that anyway. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, uh, all the stuff that happens before the opening credits is really, really cool. I yeah. thought the, the introduction of these stranger things, this monster that we don't see the introduction of these, uh, these four teenagers or adolescents and getting a sense of, you know, that eighties, world that we live in i love the tupperware that mom puts the food in it's so fantastic yeah. and you know these are things that i i knew about i grew up in the 80s just like you so it's very nostalgic but i i love the production value that there's a lot of detail taken with you know how these things are set up and then we get the the chase sequence with well when when will and everybody leave after the after the dm campaign and i i freaked out a little bit adam because I didn't think we'd see a monster. Like I knew, okay, you're traveling at night in the woods on a bike. and like, okay, something's going to happen. But then we get like two glimpses of what I think looks like Slender Man. And I'm yeah. like, oh my gosh, is this what's going to happen? Am I going to have nightmares? And then everything happens with the whole, you know, in the shed and the light bulb. And then we get the, the iconic credits and great digitized 80s music that is the stranger thing like I knew about that even without yeah. watching the show the, sy the synth music yeah the synth music it's so good it reminds me a lot of Halt and Catch Fire another great series that has that really cool kind of subtle but electronic oh it's so good yeah oh it I, it I think it's it's become such a a character in this in this show that this music it's so it works so well to sort of just like star wars you can't have star wars without john williams's score and i think in its own way this synth music really says so much about the show absolutely and and then we're in so for me i think some of the highlights from this first episode were really the establishment of all these different characters so i had to write down the cast because there's like 10 of them that we follow. We've got uh, Joyce Byers. We've got Hopper. We've got Mike, Dustin. Yeah, Dustin. And Lucas and Will. Mm -hmm. So the four of them, but really Mike, Dustin, and and uh, and Lucas as this um, this tr trilogy. The tri this yeah, the trio. Of trio of kids. And, you know, this is one of those pilot episodes. I guess it's not a pilot, or it's not called pilot, <laughs> in that it's right. It's, its own thing, but it does, I think, what is effective in a pilot, which is sets you up with so many different things that you're left with this sort of mystery box of like, all right, I've got questions. And Adam, I've got questions because yeah. we haven't even gotten to talking about uh, Martin Brenner, you know, played by your friend Matthew Modine, who yeah. has probably the most epic white hair that I've ever seen. I thought that, <laughs> that was pretty yeah. I'm obsessed with hair. You know, we got Jamie Tart's hair and it's just, yeah. you know, I'm going to notice those kinds of cosmetic things, but you know, all these things contribute to what's going on. And so if you had to summarize, you've got a missing kid and you've got a monster on the loose and you've got a missing girl named 11 
who apparently has some kind of telekinetic powers. And so there's like all this stuff that is being set up and it's got me going, where is this going to go? How is it all connected? Because my brain, as simple as it is, is going to be like, okay, there's a monster. He grabbed a scientist. And then I'm going to assume right now that that same monster, that Slender Man that we see in the woods, somehow grabbed Will Byers and then spit out because Will Byers is in his lair. He has to trade someone off. And so now 11's come out. And I mean, I know none of this is probably true, but right. I've just, it's just so much to unpack that it makes me excited to watch the next episode. And I can see why this became such a phenomenon back in 2016 because it was such a compelling type of show. It reminded me a lot, honestly, of like Amazing Stories where you had these truncated adventures that would normally wrap themselves up in between 30 and 45 minutes. This obviously can't because it's a series, but the feel that you get of not only the throwback to the 80s, but really some pretty great production, some pretty great yeah. effects, lots of things I got... I got a kind of a poltergeist vibe with the whole with the phone and hearing, you know, hearing Will. Like I was like, oh my gosh, are they are they because I felt like there was a scene earlier in the early in the episode where where Joyce goes into uh, Will's little tent and tells him, hey, you can go see Poltergeist tonight. And she's like, he's like, I thought that was scary. He's like, as long as you don't have nightmares. And I'm like, oh, I'll bet. Yeah, that was a callback to that. That's kind of cool. So I was really excited. I was like, oh, this is great. And so I really, yeah. you can hear it in my voice. I legitimately was like, I'm so excited to talk about this. And I don't even know what to talk about. So if you're listening to this, you're getting the water cooler moments with me. It's just really so much fun. It's, oh, and it's, it's, I'm excited that you're excited because I love this. It has everything that I love. As you know, I'm a big, I, I was, I grew up in the eighties. I'm a big fan of all things eighties, all things retro. And I love the synth music. I love Dungeons and Dragons. I my friend Matthew Modine, who I work with, is in the show. So there's a lot of things that draw me to this this show. And I like that it's not, um, even though it's nostalgic, as you mentioned, it's not doing it for nostalgia. It's, right. it's a period show. So just like Stand yeah. By Me, which came out in 1986, was a show about four kids about this age in 1956, I think, something like that. Yeah. You know, that's sort of what this is like. It wasn't doing it. What that movie wasn't set in the 50s because that was cool and nostalgic and, and retro. That was just when that story took place. And now in our present or 2016 present, the kids and the people watching this show are probably looking at the 80s the same way we looked at the 50s. That's just why I think it works so well is that they're not even though there's lots of little nods to the 80s they're not done in a sort of kitschy way or humorous way they're just part of the decor or part of the setting it's just what it is it's when it takes place and so we're sort of living yeah. the with these characters and it happens to take place in 1983 which actually originally it was pitched as 1980 but but uh i, I think it's pretty great the way it is yeah i think it is too and i think you're right that we don't feel like we're in a tribute to the eighties. You know, we don't hear right. all the music. We don't see all the, the styles. Although I think I could have done without Nancy's friend who was teasing her about making out and, yeah. and the, the, the pants she was wearing, those like mom jeans <laughs> that 
yeah i mean very very 80s for sure yeah that's that was a pretty um uh pretty in pink there was definitely like a a callback to some of those john hughes high school teen you know dramedies with the the nancy and barb scenes and Mm -hmm. uh and nancy and steve steve harrington who's got who's got pretty cool hair yeah yeah steve's got great hair too great 80s (laughs) hair yeah (laughs) but yeah it's uh it's really interesting just to see the eighties, the, the, the decade that we grew up in be such a nostalgic thing now in a way that I never would have anticipated that as a kid, obviously, or even in the nineties, I feel like when I was in the nineties, everyone was trying to distance them, themselves from the eighties as much as possible. Like no one wanted to have anything to do with the eighties. <laughs> yeah. But I think the, the thing that makes this episode and I guess potentially the show successful is that, the 80s setting allows for the mechanics to make sense. So if you look at some of the things that are used, like the phones, if these were cell phones that were used, it'd be a little bit different to kind of carry out those different plot devices. Riding a bike instead of instead of getting rides or getting somebody else's car. I mean, we don't have that. I mean, we joke a lot sort of cynically about the fact that you know, our kids can't go out and ride bikes anymore because the world is not safe. You know, I think that this show plays off of that idea that if it were set some some other time period, you'd have to account for the things that are used to move the story along, like the bike sequences or the the analog phones, you know, the rotary phones, I guess. Rotary phones or the giant walkie talkies that they use in their bedrooms. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's purpose to that purpose that the Duffer brothers are using strategically. And I think the bonus is that it takes place in a time period that we look fondly on now. Whereas, you know, growing up in the nineties, like you said, it's not something that we necessarily were like, I don't want to go back there, but um, I hope we keep that same tone. Honestly, I hope we don't kind of dive into over nostalgia that we just kind of stay with this established time period. Yeah. So there it is. Yeah. And go ahead. I was going to say, yeah, it takes place in Hawkins, Indiana. And um, I can give you a little tidbit. As I mentioned, uh, as a longtime friend and co-producer with Matthew Modine, I remember when he got the script for the show and he had really no idea what it was. He just said, yeah, I have this new, this new project called Montauk. I was like, oh, Montauk, what's, what's that about? He's like, well, I, really, I can't really talk about it. You know, I had to sign something. I said, oh, well, is it – I said to him, does it have anything to do with the Montauk Project Conspiracy? And he's like, how do you know about that? I said, oh, I just, I'm, I'm a fan of, I, I'm into these kind of fun conspiracy theories. I just think, you know, like UFOs and all that kind of stuff. I'm into, I'm interested in, I find it entertaining. I like to watch the History Channel and, and, and late at night and watch these, these shows. And he's like, well, that's, that's what it's about. That's where it takes place in Montauk, which if you don't know, Montauk is the easternmost point of Long Island, New York. And in the 40s, uh, the United States built a base there called Camp Hero. And this is real. This is true. And it was meant to be a, a sur- like a point where they could detect an incoming invasion uh, by the Germans, by the Nazis during World War II. Obviously, that never happened. And during the Cold War, it began doing a lot of really strange experiments, scientific experiments. And it was heavily surveilled by, by the Soviets during the cold war because they knew weird stuff was happening there. And it, 
the the rumors of course of people that have worked at this camp at this base uh they range from alien contact time travel telepathy alternate dimensions and mutant mutant monsters and all kinds of of crazy stuff so basically this is the this is where that's where the show was originally going to take place at some point it switched to stranger being called stranger things and not being called montauk and it moved to to uh hawkins indiana the fictional town of hawkins indiana i guess they didn't want it to be based on an actual place and even if it's all conspiracy or theory they wanted to make it feel like it's an original concept right so at some point along the way it it became fictionalized but that was sort of the the real life basis if you will for the uh for the 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 show concept and uh it it's uh it's obviously heavily influenced by early Spielberg, Stephen King, John Carpenter, all of all those movies from the late 70s, early mid 80s that we all, you know, watched on VHS <laughs> growing yeah. up over and over again. The Vahas world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and 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 just so you you know, they took this to every network, TV network, every studio, every streaming platform. I believe Netflix was like the last one they pitched to and they were about to give up. And thanks to Sean Levy, uh, who's a director, you've probably seen some of his films. He, uh, they were able to get a chance to pitch to Netflix and Netflix greenlit the show for them. And like you said, it became like their first true franchise blockbuster success that they fully owned outright. And it, and it also being original, not based on, not something that they acquired, not something that's based on an existing property, you know, book or a comic. So it's pretty remarkable how this show kind of even came to be what it is. Yeah, I was surprised to see Sean Levy's name on there. Not because, well, I don't know much about the show at this point, but yeah, right. I, I've been very much a fan of a decent chunk of his work. I yeah. really lo- loved his, um, I-, I loved Real Steel and Night mm-hmm. at the Museum. And what Sean Levy does really well as a director is he builds characters and he mm-hmm. makes us fall in love with characters. So that's something that I'm looking forward to. I'm not saying that he is the only one that can do that, but the fact that his name was on there as EP, it makes me feel like we're going to get a good balance of character development along with good good plot. So right. I'm excited about right. that. Speaking of the plot, I think that it's important to kind of point out that, as I mentioned before, there's this monster that we don't know a lot about. And I thought it was so cool that we actually got three different kinds of reveals. So we got the monster that pulls the guy up at the beginning, the, the scientist. Yeah. And then later on, Matthew's character, Martin Brenner, who I don't know if he's a doctor. I think he is. Yeah, they do. I think they say Dr. Brenner in the very when they you first see him kind of staring off and a bunch of these guys in suits get out of the car. They say Dr. Brenner or something like that. Okay, there's a quick it's very subtle and quiet. But yeah, he's he's clearly um, not like a medical doctor, but a scientist. Yeah. And his his character is really interesting because he doesn't say a lot. He's very much sort of leading a team. Uh, there's that great sequence where everybody's putting on the hazmat suits and taping themselves up yeah. and getting ready. I'm like, what is going to happen here? And then they go down this long corridor that we are familiar with from the opening sequence, but it's got all this kind of floating debris of like, what is happening here? Yeah. And it's almost like floating snowflakes in yeah. the air or, 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 or like ash. 
Yeah. It's hard to describe. It reminded me a lot. I know you don't, uh, you've probably not played the last of us, the video game, but there is a, no, no, there, there are several sequences where there is uh, spores, like this post-apocalyptic world. There are parts of the game where you go through these tunnels and there are spores. You have to put a mask on. And I kind of felt like, Oh my gosh, it's like spores from the last of us. Are we going to have like <laughs> crazy clicker zombies coming out to get us? I don't know. But what we see is those, I guess, entrails or uh, I don't know what you would call them, but these creepy looking like organic extensions of whatever is in this place or whatever was in this place. And what surprised me, Adam, is that no one was like, oh, my gosh, it's out. They were like, yeah, has has it been here? Yes. And what about the girl? Uh, We'll find her. I'm like, it was just so nonchalant. Like, has this happened before? Are you guys? Right. It's just like, oh, we moved over here to Hawkins because, you know, in Long Island, this thing happened. We had to get out of here. So we, right. <laughs> it just felt so like, uh, shouldn't you be freaking out more? I mean, you basically duct taped yourself to these uh, hazmat suits with, you know, no, yeah. no breathable apparatus to, to show. And you're just walking through here and not afraid at all, which tells me, look, I guess either Brenner and his gang have been used to this or they've kind of composed themselves enough to say, okay, we've got to just yeah. take this thing one day at a time. Yeah. And I, it kind of feels like Brenner knows what like the other guys, it's almost like those other guys that came in, in the cars and the suits that they're sort of being introduced to this situation by Brenner. It almost feels like that he's familiar with this and he's like the expert in it. And yet he's still also trying to figure it out. Right. He's still trying to learn and, um, use his scientific training to to you know figure out what what got out what is this sort of organic mass that's on the wall Look, looks like it's breathing or grumbling or gurgling and it, is it a hole is it does it have a mouth like we don't quite understand what it is we're dealing with yet but it's a pretty it's an interesting scene as you said and and you mentioned Brenner and uh, one other fun fact again this is the last one about uh what I learned is that he, when Matthew was offered the part, his name, his character was called agent one. And he actually was more like the character of keys from ET. If you've ever seen uh, the Peter Coyote character who you always see like his keys jingling, wearing blue jeans and he's always running around, you know, he's the government agent that's basically trying to capture ET. And that's kind of, that was the inspiration originally for Matthew Modine's character. And he sort of decided in developing his character. No, I think he needs to wear like a really nice suit. He needs to be, have like white hair, like be just very, um, as he put it, almost look like, um, Cary Grant from North by Northwest and like a nice gray pressed suit. All, you know, like he dresses well, like he's not just some guy in jeans and, you know, jingling keys on his belt. You know, he's really, he's, he's put together. And so I, I think he created the, the white hair also creates a very iconic look that I think, makes him stand out even more so Agreed. amongst all the other yeah, um all the other just normal dark hair guys that he's standing around with. So it's just fascinating again to see how shows and characters can can evolve from their initial sort of in, you know inception. Mm-hmm. The casting I think overall was really good because all these characters look like comic book characters. And I don't mean that yeah. in a bad way. I no. mean they all stand out. None of them feel like they really kind of blend in with the background. You've got uh, Jim, Mike, and Dustin, or excuse me, 
My bad. I think it's Jim. No, sorry. I'm getting all my characters mixed up. You've There's got Mike, Dustin, and Lucas, this uh, this group of three, and they all just have a presence about them. They all have a look yeah. that's distinct from one another and from other people. And that's called out when they run into those bullies from those, school yeah. who specifically are like, you know, who should we mess with today? And they, I think they they zero in on on Dustin, Dustin. who's got the yeah. uh, the lisp. And uh, yeah, know, he's got of, something called uh, cladiocranial dysplasia, which is a real rare genetic condition where like certain bones don't fully form. And, and a lot of times teeth don't um, it like delays the onset of adult teeth coming down. So that's why he just, he has the list because he's got no front teeth and that's what he, the actor in real life has. Oh, I didn't so know that. It, okay. Yeah. And so it, they just worked that into his, his character because it's something he, he has in real life. Mm hmm. And you know, as you mentioned, Martin Brenner's look is very distinct. Even um, even Joyce Byers, who I will say this honestly, this is probably what turned me off of Stranger Things was just the eccentricness of Winona Ryder. But again, giving it a I guess a second chance at this point and having an investment with somebody else to talk to about it, it didn't yeah. come across that way with me. I, I understood. I understood. You know, she's freaking out, and the progression of her of her, I won't call it craziness, but of her anxiety feels very natural. You know, she's yeah. frustrated with her son because he wasn't watching and he's like, oh yeah, he went to a friend's house. He probably stayed over there. And so she just casually calls over to the wheelers and nope, he's not there. And then she's like, okay, what's happening here? Then she goes to look around and then she ends up at, at Hopper's, uh, at the police station talking to Hopper, which man, I love David Harbour. He is so fun he, in this. Yeah. And his introduction, I think is one that is just really um, distinct. I love how he gets up. He's you know on the couch. We're, we're trying to infer a lot of things in this opening episode, and those establishing shots tell us, okay, he's got a kid, but he's living alone, so maybe he's divorced. He's li you know sleeping on the couch, so clearly he's depressed. I think he's depressed at this point. Well, yeah, and there's lots of beer cans mm -hmm. everywhere, so he's been drinking. Yeah. And, yeah. But he has a routine. Like he gets in the shower, he brushes his teeth, smokes a cigarette, and right. then and then washes. Takes a painkiller. Takes a painkiller <laughs> and then washes it down with beer. And, yeah. And then there's that great shot where he's outside. I think smoking the cigarette, kind of taking in the air. And the thing is, is you know, he's he's shirtless. He's not fat. Like he's not overweight, but clearly he's not in shape. So right, it, he's it, let himself go slide a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So watching him sort of get ready for the day and then leave, find out that he's a sheriff and he has that great banter when he walks into the uh, sheriff's office because there's this kind of like mix of respect and no respect for him from everybody in the department. They know that he's been drinking. In fact, I think his receptionist says something about, you know, whether you're, you know, he overslept or you're drunk. Uh, well, I need you to know about these couple of things that are happening. He's getting a donut. <laughs> and he, yeah. he finishes that scene by saying the morning is for coffee and contemplation. And she's trying to feed him and feel coffee and contemplation. And I'm like, that's kind of what I want to do. If people are bothering me in the morning, I'm going to start yeah. saying that morning is for coffee and contemplation. Even though I don't drink coffee, I'll, I'll continue to yeah. say that. But I think it's such a great way to introduce him. And then over the course of the episode, we really start to discover more about the fact that, you know, what happened to his daughter and, 
I don't know that there's really any motivation. This is something that maybe you can clarify for me. So he goes sure. to investigate Joyce Byers' house. He ends up going out to the shed where that's where Will disappeared. He gets startled by this the light that flickers, and then something triggers him to say, we need to go find him. So I, I, I don't know if I missed something that maybe you can fill in the gap, but what does the, does the episode tell us kind of what it was that triggered him to kind of take, you know, get serious or to, to be more um, purposeful think, about that? Yeah. I think there were a couple things in that scene, which first and foremost, I'll just mention that when he hears the dog barking outside and he goes over and sees the dog barking towards the shed, that's like a shot for shot um, homage, if you will, to E.T., when Elliot does that too. So, and he's same thing in like something in the shed dark, the dog, the dog seems to know. And so, yeah, he goes into the shed. Yeah. There is the light flickering, but there's two other things that I think he notices. One, he notices that there's um, ammunition on the counter that will had tried to try to, I don't know if it was a BB gun or what kind of gun it was. I'm not sure if I, I, I didn't catch it, but he, there's clearly some, some, some ammunition that's been scattered about as if he would, and his, and his guns missing, right. His, um, his rifle, whatever it is that he was using is not, pre is not there. So, right. so clearly someone took that and was in a hurry in the process. So gotcha. I think that made him think, okay, he, someone was chasing him. Something happened because why would his rifle be missing? And why would there be ammunition, you know, just sort of strewn about the counter? And yeah. there was also an audio cue. I'm not sure if you picked it up. There was like a kind of a um, a gurgling sound that he hears mm. from the corner of the of the shed. And then when he goes to look, there's nothing there. Okay. So something, something, maybe he sensed sensed something, heard something, but clearly he knew he could see from the scene of the crime, if you will, in the shed, this is where will last was. Okay. And then from there, you know, using his detective skills, he realized this is now we have to figure out where did he go from here? Right. This was, there's sort of evidence of his presence, but we don't know uh, where, where his next move was. Like, where gotcha. did he run off to? That's, okay. that's what I took from it. Yeah. Okay. So that makes more sense, but it, so it leads to him, you know, getting the search party together. And that's where we get him in a conversation either. I can't remember if it's with him or with his partner is talking to someone. I think he's talking to the science teacher, Mr. Clark. Yes. Um, I love Mr. Clark with his, uh, hand yeah, it's so good. Yeah. The earth and biology teacher. Yeah. Who, who like kind of befriends the kids. I mm -hmm. think they all, um, are part of the like AV club together. Yeah in uh in this in the middle school dustin's the uh secretary of the AV yeah. club with his terrible <laughs> australian accent yeah <laughs> but yeah they all try it too they all attempt to do uh to do an australian accent which i thought was uh kind of interesting well lucas they, doesn't they get did a chance to because before oh, he gets right. a chance to yeah. the, the principal calls them into the uh into that's the office right. where <laughs> where, yeah. where hopper's trying to get them to talk about you know do they know where will is and they start throwing out these these street names that are references to Lord of the Rings. Oh, oh excuse yeah, me. Mirkwood. Yeah, yeah, Mirkwood. 
that are references to Lord of the Rings, and, and then oh, excuse me, no, The Hobbit, <laughs> the, the Hobbit, the, the yeah. dial, the 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 dialogue between uh, between Dustin and Lucas is so funny. He's like, "Who cares?" And, yeah, <laughs> and Hopper's just like, "I need another donut." <laughs> yeah, is this is this still morning? Because I need contemplation. This is just what I need. And, and to set the stage too. This town, it's like a sleepy town. Nothing really ever. He even mentions like nothing ever happens here. So he has, and we don't know where, I think he says he's been there for four years as the chief of police. We don't know where he was prior to this. We don't know if he was serving somewhere else, but he clearly doesn't think anything happens or ever will happen. (laughs) That's very bad. I think they mentioned at one point someone's uh, lawn gnomes got went missing or something. <laughs> yeah, his secretary was like, "Oh yeah, that's yeah, that's something I'll get right on." <laughs> yeah, so that's the type of stuff he's usually dealing with. So this is clearly a bigger event for the town, for him and the and, and the police department. And he's finally starting to take it seriously. I think at this point, once he he realizes that he he may have been he may have come home from his friend's house before he then ran off somewhere else. And so they, yeah, they formed the search party at night and they're, they're all, you know, fanning out through the woods, through Mirkwood, as they call it, searching for him to see if uh, I I would imagine in the back of his mind, he's thinking, are we going to find a body? You know, are we going to find a boy? Because, you know, this is the, one of those situations where if he didn't come home, unless he was kidnapped, something could have bad could have happened to him. He could have hurt himself. Someone could have hurt him. So it it's it, it probably for for Hopper at least is uh, a concerning situation that probably won't end well. And I, I know from other shows where people go missing, it's usually the if you don't find them the first like twenty four forty eight hours, that's usually not a good sign. You know, usually yeah. something something bad has happened. So yeah, uh, yeah it's it's scary. And there's uh, and. Another scene uh, we mentioned the big '80s walkie-talkies. The kid, the guys are talking in their bedrooms, and they kind of decide, you know, we need to. Their parents, of course, don't want them going out at night searching, but they decide that they they want to get in on this. It's their, it's one of their best friends. They want to look too, so they decide to go out and and search themselves. And and I think that's, uh, you know, it shows that they're they have a a deep friendship connection. I don't know. If, I mean, I had a. I had two really close friends in that middle school time, which I would consider to be that type of uh, close knit friendship. I never had a, a group of four like that. That that we always we always had like one or two guys that would slip in and out of our of our yeah. trio. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. It's it. Uh, but that's why I like these these types of movies and these shows because that that's sort of what happens when you're that age. You you band together with a you know, two or three other like-minded individuals and you, you kind of form a, a team, if you will. Yeah. And they, and they teams, you know, stick together and, and stick up for each other. As you said, they get bullied and they all try to, you know, help each other out and mm-hmm. cheer each other up. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I love that trio. It feels very authentic, not only mm-hmm. for the time period, but just in general about having those yeah. two to three people that you're going to, lean on and and trust in fact there's that great moment where mike dustin and lucas are riding their bikes over to the the site of where uh, will's bike was and they decide to go past the police line into the woods and initially dustin's like i'll stay here 
and whether he's just freaked out because it's starting to rain and he doesn't want to be alone. I mean, he takes off with them. And, you know, it, it kind of raises the question, is it scarier to be alone out in the open yeah. or with your friends in the scary woods? And I think both of them right. are pretty, pretty freaky, but I think it's really cool that he follows them along. And I love the fact that, that Mike says, you know, keep your radio on, on Channel 16. He said, look, it's, it's fine. You can stay here if you want. I'm glad they that he ended up going with them because I mean, they all need each other. And, of course, they end up yeah. seeing uh, Eleven for the first time in, to, to end the episode. That's not obviously the first time we've seen her. We, we've seen her escape. The first time I think we see her is she's coming through the woods. I think it's the scene yeah, right she's after. Barefoot. Yeah, it's, it's the scene right after Brenner says, what about the girl? And then we cut to her. And we we see her eyeing this diner um, run by, I don't remember the actor's name, but he plays a character named Toby in the popular NBC series, This Is Us. He's so funny in that series. And when I saw him for the first time, I remember him from the first time I, I started watching Stranger Things, and I was reminded again, I was like, oh, dude, it's Toby. And then... I was reminded a couple of scenes later that Toby doesn't last very long. <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. He's, he plays Lonnie in this show. Yeah, Lonnie. So Lonnie and Toby. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I was sad to see him yeah. get killed off uh, so quickly, but it definitely. And he was so nice too. Cause mm-hmm. he was, you know, he, he was very, you know, fatherly to 11. You know, he, he tries to help her out, gives her some food and, and uh, calls social services right. to, to help her out tries to get her to to talk to get you know to tell him who she is where she came from and she doesn't i don't think she says anything more in this episode than 11 i think she just says the word 11 and points when to he herself looks at the ta- yeah and it looks at the sort of tattoo on her arm has a zero one one and she yeah she says 11 and that's it i think that's her one line yeah but yeah so we're we're not led you know we don't know much about her character at this point other than clearly she escaped mm-hmm. from this department of energy building yeah. in the town and she's uh, does not want to go back. Right. <laughs> she's on the run. Yeah. And I think it'd be important to, before we, before we end the episode, not that we're ending it anytime soon, we might, but um, cause there might be some other <laughs> stuff that we, we've been kind of scatterbrained this first episode, which is fine because there's just a lot here, but I think it's important to kind of establish the things that we do know. And we'll start with her. Yeah. We know that she's been, um, Abduct, uh, captured and she's been cooped up in this laboratory. We know that she has telekinetic powers. We know that she doesn't like to talk and she loves ice cream and burgers and fries. So she's an American girl. You know, she likes those things, but, <laughs> yeah. but those are the things that we know about her. We also know that the town telephone lines are tapped mm-hmm. and there's no logical like link. So, you know, we find out that, you know, Joyce is on the phone talking to a neighbor about her son, and we find out that their her her phone is tapped. We can assume that everybody's phone in that town is tapped, and they're all listening. I don't know who these people are, but clearly, I believe that same group of people intercepted Lonnie's phone call to social services, which brought the not social services woman yeah. who shot Lonnie. So we know that there's some kind yeah. of um, underground telephone service or telephone interception yeah. that is probably not the FBI or any official government agency um, to to really kind of let us know that 
nobody is safe talking on the phone. You should just, you know, do smoke signals or, you know, stay on the, stay on yeah. the, stay on the, uh, <laughs> the walkie talkies. I think the trio has got a smart idea by staying on the walkies. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think this was meant to imply that they're looking for the girl, 11, who has escaped and that by using, by tapping all the line and having people listening, like actually not like a computer scanning the calls and recording them, but actual warm bodies listening to every phone conversation take place in the town that maybe they'll get a clue as to where she uh, has gone, right? Gotcha. That someone yeah. might, something might slip up. Someone might say something that will give them some type of a, a direction. Uh, as Dr. Brenner says, uh, she, she couldn't have gone far. Right. All- she's a little girl on foot, barefoot. Right. So where could she where could she go? So I think that that's the the implication. I assumed that this was inside that Department of Energy building in Hawkins. But you're right. It could it could be anywhere. I mean, this could be some this could be below the Pentagon for all we know. This this is what they do all right. across. America. You know, they're <laughs> tapping. They've got thousands and thousands of people back in 1983 tapping everyone's phone. Is this NSA? And, is this uh, what we're doing? This is it, could, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Free NSA. <laughs> yeah. So who knows? But yeah, it, it's fun to imagine that the uh, the government has the the manpower and the 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 ability to to listen to every phone conversation going on in that in that town yeah at that time i i have this bad feeling that because we know that particular piece of information and we know that the not social services lady shoots lonnie (laughs) yeah what did they do to the real social services person because obviously he called social services if they tapped that phone yeah did they intercept her and kind of pull up or they meant he Milani says something, I believe, like, boy, that was fast. Like, so maybe they just got there, but they kind of beat the oh, real woman yeah, to yeah, yeah. to the diner so that she might still show up and find Lonnie dead on the ground. Although I'm sure <laughs> these guys can clean up their mess. Right. Um, but there, that's a fun scene because you don't see what happens, but you see 11 witnesses the murder of Lonnie and she kind of runs out the back and you don't see, but you hear like a. A, a, an interesting sound effect, like a, a a pounding sound, and then Dr. Brenner enters through the front door and runs you know, into the back and sees two of his agents just like unconscious on the floor. Well, maybe they're dead. I don't. I don't know. I but, think they have, there's blood uh, coming out of their heads. I yeah. Think. So <laughs> clearly, little Eleven was <laughs> able to take down two grown men uh, in this small space. And then the the only other you mentioned her telekinetic abilities, like the only scene i think that we get is when she's eating at the table and there's like a old rickety uh fan that's kind of rotating and making a lot of loud noise and you see her kind of like annoyed by this and she kind of stares at it and then it stops so that's i think the first clue we have that she has some type of of ability yeah yeah so some of the other things that we know and i think we we derailed a little bit but getting back to hopper we know that he has yeah. a, that he had a daughter, and I believe a daughter. Yeah. that she was killed or she died. So he's got some skin in the game in terms of caring about missing children or about children that might be dead. So right. we've got some agency with him, hoping to find out more about that a little bit. Find out little things like Joyce is a full time working mom. Seems like she's got like seventeen mm-hmm. jobs. One of which I think is a waitress. <laughs> uh, her son. Yeah. Also, uh, works too. Yeah, yeah, he works too. 
and um and then we find out that um she's also divorced because she makes a phone call yeah. to her ex-husband who she she says some teenage girl answered the phone whenever she tried to call him and uh so i'm i'm, I'm assuming that he's going to come into the picture at some point cuz i'm sure she was asking to see if you know will had come to visit him i yeah. don't know where he lives uh, if 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 that's the case i think maybe he lives close by maybe in another town or someplace in in the uh in in i thought they town. said something like i thought she said to hopper was it maybe indianapolis or i, I don't know like okay. it was another city like clearly he had you know abandoned his family and gone off and ran off and did his, was doing his own thing now outside yeah. of uh of Hawkins at least. Yeah. So he's really not in the picture anymore. I don't think is what we're sort of led to believe is he's just sort of, uh, somebody that hasn't been around in, in quite a while. Cause, mm-hmm. and she doesn't even want to call him. I think that's interesting too. Like she clearly wants nothing to do with him. Doesn't, doesn't want to have to reach out to him, but right. with, when, when your son goes missing, you know, you, you do what you got to do. Exactly. So. Yeah. And I think one of the other things that I picked up on is the fact that, I alluded to poltergeist, but near the end of yeah. the episode, we come to find out that it's possible that Will is inside the electricity that he's been, that he's in, not inside the phone, but in a similar way to, I'm going to spoil a little bit of poltergeist, that Carol Ann is sort of contacting her parents beyond the, 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 this world that we get a mm-hmm. similar thing with, uh, with with will where joyce appears to hear his voice in a phone call yeah yeah, and she's it's it's really i won't say funny it's coincidental or it's very much kind of playing into that poltergeist type of type of moment where she is talking to someone else who is with with will like it's not just him and we get that same thing in poltergeist where poltergeist or where, where carol ann is not alone that there's someone else with her it's so, it's so i mean it just freaks me out just thinking yeah. about it and I, remember, I know i know i remember having nightmares about poltergeist too and uh, i think a lot of of kids of our generation that was a movie that we saw too young because it was only rated pg pg this is before pg-13 so every parent was like it's pg it's it's it should be fine and it's steven spielberg you know it, and steven spielberg presents he was the producer and the writer he didn't direct it obviously but uh, yeah it it was clearly not something 10 11 year old kids should have been watching but we did we saw it and i think it scarred many of us <laughs> at a young age yeah and uh yeah, especially because it was coming from Spielberg, who had done so many sort of wholesome family, not not that Jaws is wholesome, but, you know, they were movies that were designed to be very enjoyable for the whole family. You know, that especially movies like E.T. or Indiana Jones or Close Encounters, even, you know, this it had a very uplifting ending. So Poltergeist was definitely the first foray for Spielberg into more of a like a like a like a horror suspense genre that he hadn't really tapped into b- before, and uh, yeah, I think it's I I like that they sort of use that one, and it's the only one in the whole episode that flashback with Winona Ryder in I think it's he calls it Fort Fort Byers, that's yeah, his Byers. little his little tent <laughs> yeah. out in the or not tent, it's uh it's made of like wood and twigs and yeah, it's 
that's where his little 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 man little cave. Fort. It's his fort. Yeah, Fort Byers. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so that that was an interesting choice that they they chose to have that one flashback scene where she brings him tickets to see Poltergeist, and he's like, "Oh, I'm, I thought I wasn't allowed to see it." She says, so. "She says only if you promise not to have nightmares, or I promise." Like, yeah. How can you promise that? What are you I, you can't. Yeah. Especially think, as a kid. Yeah, she was. I think she was just excited about the fact that she didn't have to work and that she was able to spend some. She time wanted with some her. quality time with her son. Yeah. yeah, I think every working parent wants to make opportunities, especially I think at this age when kids start to sort of drift away a little bit more you know, as they become, you know, preteens, teenagers. They start to become less interested in their parents. So parents are just trying to find any chance to spend some quality time with them. And if it means taking them to the movie that, that uh, you didn't really want them to see, then, Hey, it's better if they go with me, right. Than if they go with their friends, scarred them for life, whatever. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And and that scene, Adam, I, I, what I, I found it does is it establishes a relationship between her and Will specifically. There's a moment near the end of the episode where, She's talking to Will's older brother. I don't know that I got his. his Jonathan. Jonathan. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, he's a character that doesn't get a lot of credit in this episode, but he has this really quiet sense of, um, there's a delicateness to him where yeah. he is, by the end of the episode, he obviously feels guilty because he wasn't taking care of Will. And she tells him, no, don't feel guilty. This isn't your fault. I don't feel like any of that was insincere or tribute or tro- tro- like a trope or anything but he, he we find out that he, yeah he's, he's he's a photographer that he has taken some good pictures and she says i'm sorry that i haven't been there for you it's just been i've been working a lot so we know that there's been some neglect with her and him but i wonder if that's kind of exacerbated because she's spent more time with Will, like she's got a different relationship with Will than she does with Jonathan. So that's something else I'm kind of curious about. What kind of backstory is there between her and her relationship with her kids? Like, are they from the same? Yeah. I'm yeah. assuming they're from the same father at this point, but yeah, they look enough alike. They both have similar hair and color and sort of style. I think they're meant to be, you know, genetic siblings. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think, you also get the impression when we first meet Jonathan, the older brother, because he's cooking breakfast for Will and him, that he's kind of taking on a father figure right. role as well. Like right. he's he's working. I'm not sure how old he is. I don't know if he's supposed to be out of high school yet. I don't. That we haven't learned yet if if he is. But he's clearly working his own job. He says something like, "I took an extra shift. I, I thought we could use the cash." So he's taking on that extra responsibility of not only being a brother and but also being uh, like a male role model, male fatherly figure for, for, for Will, who is in the, in, he's the youngest and and needs the most. And I think he's also, as, as Joyce mentions to Chief Hopper, he's like a different boy. You know, he's very sensitive. He's, he's not like other kids. She keeps trying to, she's trying to convince Hopper that he's not like everybody else. Like he wouldn't run away. He wouldn't do the things that other kids would do that if he were, if he's missing, he's actually something happened to him. Like she knows him well enough to know that this is not his 
personality type and he's very sensitive that he he loves his mother and wouldn't ever do anything like this uh you know he he obeys the rules all of that so yeah it's interesting just to see that that we get quite a bit in the short amount of time that we've had with them we already know right. a lot about them we can sense a lot about who they are as a family and what's been going on in their lives yeah and it it leaves me with obviously there are a ton of questions which this episode was yeah. meant to to leave us with uh, several that I have going into the next one are why you know why will Byers was he just a casualty of war at this point was he like wrong place wrong, wrong place time, wrong time kind of, yeah does this monster that we get a glimpse of in the woods this slender man looking monster is that a shapeshifter does he have a different presence What's his connection to Eleven? Uh, one of my theories is, does he have to have a child <laughs> in his presence ah, at all times? So, so does he abduct yeah. Will Byers? What's the, you know, what's the connection with the electricity? Does he get power from the electricity? Does he live in the electricity? You know, all these things that are just kind of like, man, this if this could go in these different directions, it could make for a really good series. And obviously, yeah. the series has been successful enough. So, you know, I'm going to, play smart here and think maybe it goes in one of those directions. So I'm going to have like 15 different theories, one of which will be yeah. right. And I'll be like, I told you it was this way. But well, and good shows, I think make you do that. They make you start creating your own sort of choose your own adventure paths, right? In your mind, you're sort of thinking, okay, it could go this way. It could go that way. And that's what they want. And that's what keeps you coming back for more. And I think this was one of the first really, when it first aired, when it first not it didn't air, this isn't, network television you know <laughs> airwaves if it was 1983 it would air but uh when it first um streamed it it was it was one of those shows that that people couldn't stop like they literally binged the entire season in one day the people were so hooked on it so quickly they couldn't wait to you know spread it out over a week <laughs> Uh, and I think that's this is around the time that like binging really started for Netflix, at least started to make their service really uh, sort of the coveted model. Right. Because you could you could watch an entire season of a show uh, in one weekend and just get it all, you know, in, into you at once. And now I think we're at a point where maybe people miss and miss the sort of weekly water cooler talk that you can have in between episodes. And uh, so I think there's pros and cons to the, the two sort of methods of releasing mm -hmm. content. Yeah. And I, I think they're both valuable and, and can, and there's room for both of them in, in the market. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really, this leaves you with more questions and answers. Want, it makes you want to just go right on to the next episode yeah. and to see what, see what happens. And uh, I, I, I frankly don't even remember everything. So that's what's kind of fun for me because 2016, it's a little while ago. A lot, of, a lot has happened in my life. So yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's fun to sort of go back and re-experience. And I just like some of my favorite shows and movies, uh, we've talked about Back to the Future at length and all the great details and Easter eggs and things that you, you discover with each subsequent viewing. Uh, you know, I noticed... Uh, a, a really great you mentioned it earlier that when we're first introduced to hopper in his in his uh house it's right after the opening credits the the camera kind of pans from a, a childhood drawing 
of of his family down over a table where there's like beer cans and other things. Then you kind of pass by a television where you hear a news reporter talking about strange power outages throughout the town. And that, again, foreshadowing, it's all connected and over to Hopper. This is, to me, and I don't know if this was intentional or not, but it's a it feels very much like an homage to the opening shot from the first back to the future film where we mm-hmm. see doc Brown's, um, yeah, his laboratory and we yeah. see all the little details. We hear the radio, we hear the, the TV newscaster, all of that. So I'm, I, I think that's a, even though that film isn't being referenced directly, I think that sort of style of, of, uh, introducing a character through audio and visual sort of, uh, information that you're sort of seeing on screen uh, is is a really effective tool. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think that speaks to the strength of those movies that we've been talking about this episode, that we've been talking about this episode, where there's some magic to those things. There's magic to Back to the Future and Poltergeist and E.T. And it's, again, not throwing us back into this world where we're like, man, I hope we get to see, you know, a reference to this, or I hope we get to see a reference to that. No, it, it takes what's beautiful about those things and recreates them. It repackages them in a way that's like, Oh yeah, see what you did there. And that's kind of cool. So to me, that's a lot more fun than trying to find Easter eggs. It, yeah, because you're capturing the feeling you're capturing that. Oh yeah. I remember how I felt when that happened or, Man, that's so cool how the, this is going on. I want to, before we finish up, I want to throw a little bit of love to the sound editing and sound mixing of this episode. Mm. And I'm assuming that it will continue throughout the series. It's really great. There's purpose behind the sound effects. I love that it really starts with um, with the soundtrack, with that with that digital score, that synth, synth score. It also plays into even the small things where in the police station where Hopper's being sort of harassed by the secretary and you know she tells him also Joyce uh, Will Byers mom is here about his about her son gone missing and he's like whatever and then he sees her in his office smoking a cigarette so much smoking in this episode yeah oh gosh <laughs> but rightly so you know she's nervous it was he's an addict and it was whatever. the time it was, it was the 80s it was yeah. that's what people did more of back then yeah unfortunately but she says, my son's missing. And the next thing you see is this hard cut to um, him typing the word missing. But that. Doo, 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 oh, doo, yeah. Doo. It's like the pounding. Yeah, yeah. On the of the typewriter. So just just things like that that really elevate the immersion of the show. Like I really when I watch the second episode, I'm going to put these headphones on or a set of headphones like over the ear headphones and watch it with the lights off because I really feel like that's yeah. going to capture some of the like. Ooh, creepy and just that really immersive thing. So as a TV series, I think it's doing a lot that is different from other shows. And you spoke to this earlier. I want to say that Stranger Things pioneered what people are talking about even now. The idea of binging versus weekly stuff and having a finite number of episodes. I remember when this first came out, the Duffer Brothers said, we have a story that we're going to tell, and it will be four or five seasons. And Netflix Mm -hmm. has agreed to give us those. That's pretty monumental, because when you talk about network television, when you talk about shows like Lost, or 
shows that try to tell these mystery box stories, it's really difficult on network television because it's all driven by how many viewers are you getting. I remember when I think it was Manifest that came along. And the the story itself is compelling. Characters, not so much necessarily. <laughs> but it I think it's, I don't know how many seasons it is or was, depending on when you're listening to this. But I remember... I remember liking some of it, but there were other there were other shows like Revolution that was on Fox for one season. I remember that. And I yeah. was into J. J. Abrams. Yeah. Well, I don't know if Abrams was an EP on that or not, but it was so cool. I love the idea. What if the world all lost power and we basically went back to the Dark Ages? What would that look like? And it had so much momentum. And then mid season, they went on break for like three months. And then they came back and I was like, nope, not really interested in that anymore. And it died. After that first season, it was done. So shows like that that have those kinds of premises, I think they lend themselves to finite stories. I, I and, agree with you. Yeah. And then, you know, when a, when a, when a what do you call a, a streaming service like Netflix and now HBO Max or Paramount Plus People understand, you know, these these companies understand that we can invest. It's a different investment. It's not sort of pay as you go where you're like, hopefully you'll have enough fans each week that will continue to have this story go. Now it's more, can we invest in these guys for three seasons of eight episodes apiece? So that's what Stranger Things has become. I think it tops out at either season four or season five. I think that was their their number. And so hopefully that's what we're going to get. And I want that, you know, I was so disappointed by the ending of lost because it had to quite literally and figuratively land the plane, but there was so much mythology and so much character development that you couldn't do it appropriately. So having an outlet for stories like this that need a beginning, middle and end to really feel successful. I think that's what makes stranger things so effective is that it has that already built in, so you know you're actually going to get, with confidence, a beginning, middle, and end. You have directors like Sean Levy who are at the helm that are putting together stories. I know that he's a director for several episodes. I don't know if they're in the first season or not, but um, you can have that kind of confidence knowing that you're going to get a product that has already been sort of fleshed out. We talked about that with Ted Lasso. I think it was slated to run three seasons. And so we're going to get a beginning, middle and end quite literally <laughs> with those three seasons. And it's just something that's very effective. Now, what do you lose? Well, you lose that weekly kind of anticipation of like, Oh man, what's going to happen. Right. But networks like Disney plus do that with all of their shows. And so for me, it's kind of annoying because then somebody's like, have you been watching, you know, insert what the Mandalorian or, Right. Insert Marvel show here. <laughs> it's just more Star Wars yeah. show here. And I'm like, no, right. because I want to wait and just binge them all, especially if they're 30 to five minute, eight episodes, I can crank it out in a weekend. So there's appeal to that too, by waiting. And, yeah. um, but you know, I love the anticipation. My son and I were watching the mighty ducks game changers that had been playing for like four or five weeks. When I discovered it, he discovered it. And after the fifth episode, he's like, where's the rest? And I'm like, We'll find out next week. <laughs> and so he's like, yeah, what's that all yeah. about? <laughs> like, this is the world of what I grew up with. I'm like, stay yeah, tuned exactly. for scenes for our next episode. <laughs> yep. 
And yeah, whenever my daughter watches a show on actual television, she doesn't quite understand the concept of commercials because she's so used to Netflix and Disney Plus. And you're right, it's a it's a different world for for them than it was for us. But but I I think one other thing that makes this episode work for me is I think they got the in particular with the kids they got the casting right they really nailed I mean that's hard because you know how much acting experience can you have had by the time you're 12 years old not much right so you never quite know based on a few auditions if you're really going to get the right person or not and I think with most shows or movies with kids getting those kid actors getting the right child actors for the right parts is so crucial for them for those shows or movies to work and you know like henry thomas as elliot you know if 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 he hadn't been cast in that part would that movie been as been as effective i don't know right it's really hard to say if they didn't get the right or if drew barrymore wasn't in as as gertie you know these are such iconic roles now it's almost impossible to imagine another care actor playing those parts yeah and i think in a similar way, I feel that way about these uh, really five leads because you ha- you have to include eleven mm-hmm. as well, the four boys and eleven, and even the older. Uh, we haven't really talked much about you know the the sort of high school aged kids. We talked a little <laughs> bit about, uh, but you know, there's this little subplot with um, with Nancy, who's um, the older sister of. Uh, which one was Mike of Mike Wheeler. Yeah. Yeah. And, and she's in this sort of predicament where like the cutest boy in schools, you know, the great hair um, is is interested in her. Yeah. Yeah, is very interested in her. And (laughs) and she's trying to figure out if, you know, if he's just in it for one thing or if he really likes her. And so there's this little side sort of eighties, as we said, sort of teen uh, drama going on with her and they clearly are going to play a role in some way in this, in this whole adventure. But right now they're just dealing with studying for tests and making out and, you know, the things you do. And get intertwined studying for yes. tests while making out or uh, playing exactly. strip flashcards, I think is what it was. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> they were. Yeah. I don't think they ever got to strip anything, but um, yeah, Steve Harrington very badly wanted her to uh to play strip flashcards and yeah. she was not having it <laughs> oh you're right yeah. though you, you alluded to it earlier this feels very much like a john hughes moment with like the breakfast yeah. club or pretty in pink and and that's that's good stuff because i'm a huge john hughes fan and um, yeah hopefully that becomes not just a b plot but it becomes integral to the to the overall plot so i i think even the supporting characters i agree with you are really really sharp and it's it's going to be fun. You you mentioned these kids. As I've watched other shows where you have younger actors, I appreciate these actors more because it's not. And I don't want to be that guy who like you know a movie's either great or it's terrible. No, they're serviceable in some of these shows that I've watched. There's a a show called uh, The Neighborhood that uh, is a comedy with uh, Cedric the Entertainer. And it's got, um, I can't remember the actor's name off the top of my head, but he was a new girl. And um, anyway, the, the the plot centers around this white family moving into a predominantly black neighborhood and, you know, how they befriend these uh, these neighbors. And it's a lot of fun. 
well, they have a son named Grover and his acting is just like, you know, so I, I'm <laughs> yeah. always looking forward to episodes where he's not either part of the main story or he has very little. Again, no, no harm to, to him as an actor, but there's there's a real appreciation you have when you watch these actors playing Mike and Dustin and Lucas and Eleven and what they do to really bring to life these characters that you've really attached to even after one episode. Like I wanted to jump on my bike and my crazy LED flashlight or whatever it was that they were because those things were pretty, <laughs> you know, pretty blinding. And and go with them. And I wanted to go on this adventure with them. Not because it just threw me back to the eighties, but because, you know, these guys felt like it was worth having an adventure with. And you can't get yeah. that without having um you know, good chemistry and good actors to yeah. to bring that chemistry. So well 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 spoken. Good point there. Yeah. And I there's one scene in particular I want to call out because it just fills me with such joy. It's when they're just wrapping up their D D game and the, the music that kicks in at this at this point when they're all kind of scrambling to get, get home because it's getting late, it, it it feels like their whole lives are ahead of them. Anything's possible. There's just a sense of wonder and excitement about life that they really were able to capture with how they're behaving and in particular the score that underlies uh, under you know that's underneath the scene. Uh, it's it's just a a really, I just, I actually watched that opening a couple times because it just made me feel good, and I really enjoyed it. So there's just so much going on in this in this first episode, as you said, and I, I really, and I love the the titling, as we mentioned. I love that it's chapter one. I think I think the titles are are really, uh, really say a lot about what they almost feel like mini, mini movies. You know, the the disappearance of Will By or the vanishing of Will Byers. You know, that's. That's a really cool title for for an episode. Yeah, and I just yeah, there's a lot, a lot, a lot to love here, and I just yeah, I can't wait to keep to keep going. I will probably watch the second episode after we finish <laughs> this recording. Yeah. I'll have to watch yeah. it again uh, for for note taking purposes, but for my own right personal enjoyment, for just entertainment just value just only. Yeah. Well, that'll wrap up this episode of an original series. Adam, what do we have coming up? Well, chapter two is entitled The Weirdo on Maple Street. That's an interesting title. Yeah. Uh, and it's directed and written by the Duffer Brothers, just as the first episode was. So that's uh, so it's probably going to be it, it almost feels like it could be, the, you know, like the two hour first episode, like the the supercharged first episode. Yeah, it might all be like one long episode because this really does feel like it cuts off like at a cliffhanger moment mm -hmm. uh, with so where we see the boys uh, meet 11. So everything's kind of coming together. And there's, like you said, there's a lot of questions that need to be answered. So hopefully we'll get a lot of answers to those questions in chapter two, the weirdo on Maple street. <laughs> I think the biggest question for me is whether or not Nancy's friend is going to find some better pants to wear because those yeah. jeans just need to go away. <laughs> they were not flattering on her. No, <laughs> we're going to get some so much trouble for just making fun of stuff. <laughs> on, I don't think they'd be flat. They're, they would not be flattering on any anyone. So no, I should say, no. very much not very much the mom jeans of. Uh, yeah. of that period. <laughs> No, I'm excited. I, I think there are so many questions that we will not get answered in the next episode. 
we'll probably get more questions but uh i'm excited about this adventure. this is going to be a lot of fun so be sure to uh to join us for that conversation until then i'm patch he's adam and we are out of here